Good afternoon. We are on um, WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7. Um, and this is Indigo Radio. We're here uh, from noon to one on Sundays. And um, today we have myself, Nina, on the board and... And Amar Langsdorf. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us online on Facebook, uh, at Indigo Radio, Radio, and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Great. Um, so last week we reviewed um, the Stand Up Fight Back Education Conference that uh, we as in uh, Brattleboro Solidarity and the Spark Teacher Training Institute with par- uh, in partnership with Marlboro College. We hosted a conference uh, on May 10th through 11th, so we reviewed that last week. Um, And last week we also talked about WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange um, and in terms of what kinds of criticism and reporting on capitalism and imperialism is allowed and its connection to torture of um, Chelsea Manning and um, how the Vietnam War was framed. And this week um, we spoke with um, Leah Penniman, who is the author of Farming Wild Black, and also she's the director of Soul Fire Farms um, in New York. So we talked to her about her work, about food apartheid and food sovereignty. And we'll also be speaking with Becca Polk, who is often hosting on this show, but today she will be a guest um, to talk about food and food sovereignty in Springfield. Vermont. And we will also be speaking with Joe Frigo, who is an educator. Um, He will be starting his position in Springfield in the middle school next year as a science teacher. And so he'll speak to us about the scientific aspect um, of degradation of communities and degradation of the soil, of industrial agriculture, and how um, food sovereignty can make a difference. So we're going to start off with our first song, um, Dead Prez. I'll let uh, Amara tell you a little bit about the song. Yes, this is a song by Dead Prez called Be Healthy, and I think it really speaks for itself and what this show is going to be about, and enjoy. It's all love. It's all love. No. 
no dairy, no sweets. Only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat. I'm from the old school. My household smell like soul food, bruh. Curry falafel, barbecue tofu. No fish, though, no candy bars, no cigarettes. Only ganja, fresh squeezed juice from oranges. Exercising daily to stay healthy. And I rarely drink water out the tap cause it's filthy. Lentil soup is mental fruit and ginger root is good for the youth. Fresh vegetable with them ital stew. Sweet yam fries with the green hallelujah. Careful how you season and prepare your foods cause you don't want to lose vitamins and minerals and that's the jewel. Life brings life, it's valuable. So I eat what come from the ground, it's natural. Let your food be your medicine, no excedrin. Strictly herb generates from the sun cause I got melanin and drink water. Eight glasses a day, cause that's what they say <laughs> They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy Cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways We got to start taking better care of ourselves They say you are what you eat, so I strive to eat healthy My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy Cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways We got to start taking better care of ourselves Be healthy, y'all Awesome. That Welcome was... back to Indigo Radio. Um, you're listening to WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And today our topic is food sovereignty and food apartheid. We've interviewed um, Leah Peniman, who's the author of Farming While Black. And we will be speaking with um, Becca and um, Becca Polk and Joe, Joe Frigo. Great. So that was Be Healthy by Dead Prez. A uh, really great song and very kind of atypical in its message there, but it's really just talking about eating fresh vegetables and staying healthy and the importance of these foods and having access to these foods in communities that traditionally don't have access to fresh vegetables and healthy food, which is exactly what we'll, we will be talking about on the show today. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, we've also talked about food sovereignty in the context of um, Venezuela. And I mean, if you look at the history of Venezuela, also, it's like supermarkets. It was actually president, was it Roosevelt, Mm. um, the first Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, who flooded Venezuela with supermarkets, Mm. really sort of taking the control of food away from local people. So um, having access is definitely an important aspect of what we're talking about today. So um, I'm going to introduce Leah Peniman. Uh, she is the director of Soul Fire Farm. Um, it is located in New York, um, close to Troy. It's about an hour from here. So Soul Fire Farm does not take the Eurocentric nutrition-based approach to food, which blames the poor communities and communities of color for their ill health. Fundamentally, Soul Fire Farm's work is to resist colonization and imperialism and white supremacy. Their goals are to end inequity in access to land, sustenance, and power in the food system, um, to reverse industrial agriculture's damage to the planet and harm to vulnerable communities, and to heal from a history of oppression that has disconnected our communities from the land. Um, some of their activities in the community includes um, black, black and Latinx farmer immersion. Um, they offer a CSA on a sliding scale in uh, Troy, Albany area. They have a youth food justice leadership training, and the farm produces 
food for over 80 families in the Albany and, and Troy counties. So um, I'm going to go ahead and play um, an interview. I interviewed Leah at, at a, a different time. So yes. Tell so us Leah a gets little bit about yourself, um, about your background, and um, what led you to the work that you do now. Sure. Um, well, I'm Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm, and I am an author, a food justice activist, a farmer, and a mama who's been doing this work of tending the soil and uh, working for food justice for well over 20 years now. Mm. And I started out the work as a teenager. You know, back in 96, I got a job at the Food Project in Boston transforming vacant lots into food oases and providing food for the community and just got totally hooked on that meaningful intersection between environmental stewardship and social justice. Uh, so I've been farming on a lot of other people's farms, you know, for many years. I worked at farm school. I worked at uh, Many Hands Organic Farm. I helped with the community gardens and youth programs at Worcester and eventually started Soul Fire with my husband Jonah in we got the land in 06 and we opened the farm in 2010. Uh, so we we're, we're a team of eight folks now and we do, we, we run a commercial farm that gets food to those who need it most and then do a lot of education and organizing work around racial justice in the food system. Was there something or someone that kind of inspired you to, um, or, or, or was there some kind of a, a condition around you that um, inspired you to, to start working on food? Well, specifically to start Soul Fire Farm, uh, it was the inspiration really came out of our experience raising our young children, Nishima and Emmett, in the south end of Albany, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid. And we found that with no supermarkets, no farmers markets, you know, no available community garden plots, it was very difficult for us to feed our children, despite the fact that we knew how to farm and had master's degrees. And so what... Um, we ended up doing was to join this CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, program, and it involved paying more money than the cost of our rent for these vegetables and walking over two miles to the pickup spot. And that was the only way to get veggies in our neighborhood. So we were discouraged by this, and when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they encouraged us to start, you know, the farm for the people. And that was how the idea of Full Fire Farm came about. You said the word food apartheid. That's not a term that's sort of commonly used in everyday sort of news or anything like that. Can you describe what is food apartheid and what are the conditions that cause this circumstance of food apartheid and in what neighborhoods? Sure. So what the government would use to describe neighborhoods that are high poverty and don't have grocery stores is a food desert. Uh, the problem with that term is that a desert is a natural phenomena, it's a healthy ecosystem. You know, apartheid is more accurate because it is a human-created system of segregation that relegates certain people to food opulence and others to food scarcity. And that's really the situation we have in our country right now where your zip code is a major determiner of your, your life expectancy. Um, and that's, there's a whole history of how that came to be, of redlining and zoning and housing discrimination. Uh, but fundamentally, what it results in is that, um, and that's folks of color, um, you know, are much more likely to end up with diabetes and heart disease and all these diet-related illnesses because of lack of access to good food. 
And so your work is to oppose food apartheid. And so when you, how do you go into communities? Um, do you um, kind of train people to farm, or, or do you um, deliver food? What what are what's some of the work that you do um, with communities through um, Soul Fire Farm? Sure. Um, so there's three major things that we do through Soul Fire Farm. So one is our farm share program. So uh, we grow food on about five acres of land. We grow all sorts of heritage and heirloom Afro-Indigenous crops. We use sustainable methods to do so. And we pack that food up and put it in boxes and, and take it into Albany and Troy every Wednesday to our members. And so we have about 100 families who are members of our farm share program. They pay on a sliding scale whatever they can afford from that food, and it goes right to their doorstep. And that way, reducing the transportation barrier and the cost barrier to this good food, including a program we have called Solidarity Shares, where neighbors pitch in money so that refugees, immigrants, and folks returning from mass incarceration can get entirely free food through the program. Um, we also have uh, education, you know, workshops and apprenticeships for new farmers. We work intensively with a couple hundred farmers, and overall, if you include our one-day workshops with over a thousand farmers every year, you know, training in everything from seed keeping to marketing to understanding the history of black agrarianism and the amazing contributions that black farmers have made to sustainable ag. And then the third and final uh, thing that we work on is organizing because we have really unfair laws in this country. You know, farm workers don't have the same protections under the law as other workers. Uh, right now, the land, almost all of it, and 98% to be precise, is owned by white people, which is more racially skewed than ever before. And we have, as I mentioned, a food apartheid situation where hunger and diet-related illness really disproportionately affect people of color. And there are policy reasons why that exists in policies that must be fixed. So we do a lot of regional and national organizing around uh, reparations work and policy change. So on the flip side, could you um, define food sovereignty? And is that something you sort of envision is food sovereignty? Sure. So when we talk about food sovereignty, we definitely have to give credit and a shout out to an indigenous people's coalition called Via Campesina, uh, which works all around the world, like grassroots, native-led. And the idea with food sovereignty coming out of this movement is that it's not just enough to have access to food, right, to have full bellies. It's really about democracy and the food system control. So we have to think about who controls the land, who controls the seeds, who makes decisions about the water, who controls the distribution and marketing of food, the processing of food, who owns the grocery stores and the co-ops and the restaurants. Um, and looking at, you know, as my daughter would say, everything from sunshine to plate, all those parts of the food system does the community have a say? Does the community have control? And so food sovereignty would be that democratization of the food system and a true chance for those who, you know, eat food and live on land and produce food to have autonomy and to have agency in their own lives as it relates to that land and food. Some would argue that we need to move beyond capitalism, that we need to dismantle capitalism before food sovereignty can take root in a, in a very massive and a larger scale. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Well, here's the thing. Capitalism's fundamental goal right, is to create a profit. And 
its primary uh, result, I guess, that we, we see now is the concentration of wealth in the hands of those who already have wealth. You know, so when I was born back in the 80s, according to the Pew Research Center, the wealth gap between white folks and black folks was around 8 to 1. Right now, it's 16 to 1. So capitalism concentrates capital. It does not disperse. There's no trickle down, you know. And, and so that does, to me, seem antithetical to the goals we have of distributing and making more horizontal the control of the food system and access to resources. I don't think that fundamentally the end game of being a human should be to accumulate profit. I think it needs to be about the quality of life for all beings. You know, it speaks directly to what you were saying about how black and brown communities don't have the land. You said, um, what, 90%, 98% of the land? 98% of, of the rural, yes, land, exactly. Right, right. So can you tell us a little bit about, and you talked a little bit about um, Via Campesina, and um, and what what's, are some other organizations that you work with sort of domestically and internationally in, in order to mobilize a movement? Oh, we are so blessed to have the folks that we do in our network, you know. Um, for example, just a few. So regionally, we work with the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, which is an organization that we're helping get off the ground. It's a collaboration between indigenous, black, Latinx, and native Earth keepers, soil stewards, who want to create a mechanism for the reparations of land so that we can fix this issue of having almost all the land concentrated in the hands of one racial group and redistribute it. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a land trust that can receive offerings of land and then return them to indigenous communities uh, and share them with, with black and brown communities as well. Um, so that's that's a really powerful alliance. We have about 150 members of that land trust right now. Um, and then in a couple examples nationally, the, the Heal Food Alliance is really beautiful. Um, it brings together food chain workers as well as scientists and environmentalists and farmers to come up with and champion policy platforms that are very, very comprehensive. Um, and that's uh, influencing things like how the Green New Deal is written, right, or how the Farm Bill is written. Really powerful as well as the National Black Food and Justice Alliance um, doing similar work for the black community. And then internationally, we have sibling farms. So we have these, you know, wonderful comrade farms in Vieques, uh, Finca Conciencia, in Haiti, the Bigone Peasant Movement and the Mango Growers Association, um, in Mexico, in Ghana. And it's been so special, um, you know, whenever we come in the winter, we try to organize volunteer delegations to go support our sibling farms on their projects and, you know, raise money for what they need and, and take their lead because, as I'm, I'm sure folks realize, you know, the peasant farmers of the world are those who are closest to the earth and know best the solutions for the sustainable and just food system. That's amazing, amazing work that you're doing. Um, <clears throat> so, so how can people... Uh, take part in, in standing in solidarity with your movement and the larger movement um, to add food apartheid. Um, yeah, so the great thing about the food system is that it's so intricate that there are many, many ways to interface with it and many ways to make change. So each of us gets to ask ourselves, you know, what is that nexus between what the world needs and what makes us come alive? And we spent a ton of time asking black and brown farmers um, and consumers what is needed 
to change the food system and put together this beautiful action guide. Um, because, of course, the most important thing is following the lead of the people most impacted, right? We can't pretend that we know what's best. Uh, so you can definitely check that out at soulfirefarm.org um, slash support slash take action. And, you know, just a few highlights from that. One is we have a reparations map where a bunch of uh, black and brown-led food and farming projects are posted, and they list exactly what they need. And so that you can donate time or money or other resources to these projects. So that's a really um, easy and wonderful thing to do. There's also... Uh, you know, on the policy side of things, we're really pushing the candidates um, in this next round of elections to think about uh, putting a reparations agenda on their platform so that we can address the redistribution of land and, and resources that uh, our country has never really reckoned with. So that's another thing we can encourage. Great. That's that's very interesting about reparations, um, that, that we'll see how, how that goes with the elections. Um, is there anything else that, that you'd like to leave us with? Um, well, I think, thank you for asking. I mean, I think that one of the most important things that I've learned in the process of writing our book, Farming While Black, uh, Soul Fire Farms Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land, is that, you know, all of these crucial technologies in terms of living in harmony with the earth and growing food sustainably, you know, things like no-till and raised beds, things like rotational grazing and cover crops, very much come out of the black agrarian tradition. So um, I encourage, especially the folks of color listening, to think about our relationship to land as longer and deeper and wider and more profound than we've been told. You know, it's not just about slavery and sharecropping and oppression. We really have a deep history of noble and dignified innovation on the land. Uh, and that's what we're really hoping that we carry forward into the future. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio at 107.7 FM, WVEWLP, Brattleboro, your community radio station. And that was an interview with Leah Penniman, who is the director of Soul Fire Farms and also the author of Farming While Black. Um, and we just, um, Amar and I wanted to highlight a few things that um, we thought were interesting from the interview. What are some things you found interesting, Amar? Well, one thing I think is really interesting uh, is the distinction that Leah makes between apart food apartheid and food desert, as mm -hmm. a food desert being a, a natural phenomenon that's actually healthy and that it's it just encourages people to look at this as a, as these food, quote, deserts as natural phenomena and not a uh, human-made creation that can and should be changed. And I think apartheid is a much better term for that reason. Absolutely. And I think apartheid also politicizes um, mm -hmm. the issue of food um, and lack of access to food. And it also is connected to um, racial segregation. And so I think that's a really important distinction because I hear a lot. I've very rarely do I ever hear people say food apartheid. Right. And most of the time I hear people say food desert. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm, I'm more conscious. I'll be more conscious of that language. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I thought was interesting, interesting what she said was, and it was something that was brought up at our conference. Um, I think it was two weekends ago now. Um, is that, you know, in our education system, students only learn, and particularly black students, only learn about sharecropping and enslavement and, 
and farming as oppression. Um, and so today, in, in their minds, they see farming and growing food as oppressive work. Um, you know, and, and she was talking about how, you know, that even sharecroppers, but farmers, black farmers in general, how they've sustained themselves and fed themselves. And, and so that's an important, um, something, something important to think about when people are teaching. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear about the connections between the black agrarian movement and these developments in sustainable agriculture, because to be honest, that's not something that I have been taught about. And I don't think that that's a part of the cultural narrative or general history that is taught Absolutely. to most to most students. And I think that's really important to highlight. Okay, so um, next up we have Becca Polk, who is usually a host on the show, but today she's going to talk to us about her work in Springfield, about growing food um, through a community garden and how that relates to food sovereignty. Um, and before that, we're going to um, quickly slip in a uh, underwriter's notice. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website, at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Great. Welcome back. You're on Indigo Radio. Um, and thank you, Everyone Books, for coming to um, the Education Conference uh, on May 10th and 11th to support our work in our community. Um, Becca, can you hear us? I can. How y'all doing today? Good. How are hey, you? Welcome, Becca. Thank you. So um, tell us, first of all, tell us a little bit about your, your, your work. Because, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your work in Springfield. Okay, so I've been teaching, this is my fifth year now, teaching at Riverside Middle School here in Springfield. And I think coming to Springfield and moving up from, Spring, up from um, actually D.C., I was in D.C. for four years, and coming to Springfield, I was really shocked. I thought coming to Vermont everyone would eat healthy and you know there's kind of this like advertising of vermont as like local food keeping it real mm. and i found that that was not the experience of my students in our school mostly because they are poor white students who i think have been really removed from the land and so we decided to start projects together of gardening and and taking over the school garden so that it's really a process of me learning with the students about where our food comes from and ways that we can start to eat healthier ourselves. And um, for you, like, how would you define food sovereignty in your context? You know, it's interesting because I have started to think about food sovereignty as um, in my analysis of why are people so malnourished here in a state in Vermont where there's land everywhere, feasible mm -hmm. land for us to grow food, why is there still so much obesity and hunger in this state? 
And so I really draw the connection to food sovereignty in that way, that um, food sovereignty would be people controlling the land and producing the food for the benefit of the people and not for profit. Mm -hmm. And listening to Leah's interview talking about capitalism as a system to make profit, it became more clear to me in our food system that if growing food is a way, is about extracting profit through the labor of production, um, then with it comes exploitation. Right. And so if we're walking into a supermarket, there's like this array of choices that we supposedly have, Mm -hmm. but almost all of the processed food has GMO corn in it. And it's owned by about all the food in our supermarket is owned by about six companies. So I've really learned this with the students that even though we have a choice of healthy organic food here, Mm -hmm. um, if we only look at individual choices, that's not food sovereignty. Right. Because we're locked into a system that removes people from the food that's grown and forces people to buy food that is really making us sick. Mm-hmm. Well, that I thought was one of the, the really important things that Leah mentioned in her interview, that food sovereignty is about more than having food in your belly, but about local communities having control of the process of production of food. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I can't imagine food sovereignty here in Springfield mm-hmm. yeah. under this mode of production, like under this system where the multinational corporations and the financial industry are really controlling the food production and what food is bought and sold. Right. Mm-hmm. Which makes me think that, you know, it, it can't be just thinking about food sovereignty, but it has to be really, I don't, I don't know, has it to pointing to or pointing the arrow or the sword to sort of the system that's creating, you know, housing shortages. Like we had, you know, the conversation last weekend um, at The Root in terms of, you know, housing. And it's not, it's not about um, anything but, you know, profits. Like if, if Airbnb you know, didn't provide profits, then it wouldn't, they it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't um, proliferate here. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, one other connection that I'm really thinking about right now is that teachers are going through a struggle over healthcare and are joining the fight for universal healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I see um, growing our food and like healthy food for everyone as part of the fundamentals of healthcare. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so the buying and selling of food, um, does, do you think that the buying and selling of food, like commodifying food, changes the relationship of food or anything really um, to people? Yeah, um, that's something, you know, Amy Frost, who's a farmer in Brattleboro, this is kind of what she talked about two weeks ago at our conference. Right. That as soon as she had to start relying on the food that she grew from her farm to survive in this system, there's like different choices that have to be made along the way. And so I think of small farming businesses here in Springfield, like we don't have 
Vermont's very different than California, for example, where there's big industrial agriculture happening. Right. Um, and so Vermont farms are family-owned that are now having to hire labor, yeah. oftentimes migrant laborers. And that choice of having to hire someone to work for you is based on the profit system of, and competition that happens. Right. And so there's um, – I think about, like, in my garden where, where, like, kids, where we can play and learn and experiment together and know that we have something to fall back on if our food, mm-hmm. if something harvested doesn't go well, right? Right. When you're, like, making a living off of that, it does change right. the choices that you make of how you're going to farm. Right. Because you're going to start making, taking cost-cutting approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never worked on a farm or grown food to buy and sell it. It's very important. We don't even ask for donations from our school garden or from the community garden that I help run here in Springfield. Mm -hmm. We go by the model of give what you can, take what you need. And it really does change the way we operate, the way we exist with each other in growing food. I think about like when you can take out the buying and selling aspect from growing food, um, I think about all the different things, ways my students and I can learn how to reexist in this world. Right. Um, so, like, for example, there's a tendency that someone wants to always be in charge mm. and bossing people around. There's always a kid every Monday when we go out, and the role changes of, like, that wants to be the manager and sit back and tell everyone what to do. So it provides the opportunity to have that conversation with kids of like, well, let's make a plan ahead of time and then we'll all have a task and we'll go do it. And then we'll come back in mm-hmm. and connect. Um, so I don't know. Those are like some of the ways I see um, we're obviously not removed from the system of profit. No, not at um, all. And we're very much drenched in it every day in our lives. And that um, makes us act and think in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. But I like what you said, take what you need and give what you can. I mean, at least, you know, it puts a seed in the minds of the children that there are other ways of relating and being in this world besides commodity exchanges. Mm-hmm. So. And this is slightly unrelated, but I thought it was an important point to make that I've been thinking about a lot is the conversation around uh, dirt and soil. Oh, yes. And this is like mm-hmm. a moment that has really allowed for other understandings of the world to blossom with both me and the kids mm-hmm. because we are so removed from the food that we grow. And like it's become very clear to me working with young kids that they see the like packaged in plastic food at the grocery store is cleaner than the food that we pull right out of our organic soil yeah. because they see that as dirt. Right. And so it's been really interesting to think about, like, that's an idea that we've been sold. Mm-hmm. Like, that's through um, the, like, marketing of agribusiness right. that we think something wrapped up in plastic yep. is better for us than something straight from the ground. Right. And I've had to retrain myself. Like, I'll catch myself. I, I don't say dirt anymore. And I, there was a time where I was like, dirt soil like really redefining and rethinking about it it's the same with like food apartheid versus um food desert just you know to rethink 
or reimagine what these are. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Um, great. Is there anything else you want to leave us with today? Um, I think the more that we can support projects like Leah's yeah. that are not just doing the education piece, but they're growing food for people to yeah. sustain themselves. Um, I know I've used some of Soulfire's training manuals or like workshops mm -hmm. with my students in our summer camps. And one of them that I, I, we always have such amazing conversations around, and this is a conversation that I think you can do with any age of kids. Mm -hmm. um, it's around what is your favorite food? And so when you go around and you ask kids, what's your favorite food? They're going to say pizza and mm. hamburgers and hot dogs very often, junk food. Right. And so then we look at the systems uh, or the advertisement put out around Pepsi and Coca-Cola mm. and different chips mm. and how um, we're really sold, even like our individual choices that we think is like the pillar of capitalism are actually um, just things that we've taken in from the world around us and they're not actually what we prefer. Right. And I just feel like that's such an important conversation for students to have as we're starting to hopefully engage students around growing their own food as much as they can. Absolutely. That our preferences are shaped by, by the economy. Okay. Yeah. Great. Becca, thank you so much for speaking with us. And thank you all for doing the show. Yep. We'll, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Alrighty. Um, so we're going to take a short little um, song break. Uh, we're going to play Neil M McCoy, The Last of a Dying Breed. Do you know anything about this song, Amar? Yeah, it's a country song about, oh. uh, about farming and about someone reflecting on the agricultural work uh, that their dad does and commenting that it seems that they might be the last of a dying breed. Interesting. And um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting an interesting song to play, especially as we're coming up to talking about industrial agriculture and the the way that the agricultural system has been moving. I think it's interesting to look back at uh, some of the historical methods of agriculture. Great. And here's Neil Mac. He's a cold beer drinker, a buck and beer hunter, the best friend a dog ever had. A post hole digger, a man skull dipper, a John Deere cap sporting man. With a house on a hill and a pond in the field surrounded by a mess of cornrows. Makes a living from his labor, a credit to the maker, he's somebody everybody knows. Last of a dying breed who tend the fields and mend the fences. Heaven knows I hate to think that generation might be ending, but if he goes, he will go down in history as last, last of the overall wearers, farmer tan terrors down at the VFW Hall. Cape pan liquors, rocks and made of clickers, hay balers, loading trailers in the fall. Fruit stand sellers, town square dwellers who gather at the Dairy Queen at dawn. Everybody knows them, everybody loves them, God, I'm gonna miss them if they're gone. Last 
last of a dying breed who tend the fields and mend the fences. Heaven knows I hate to think that generation might be ending, but if he goes, he will go down in history as the last, the last of a dying breed. I guess my fondest memory growing up to be playing Little League Baseball. The thing that I remember most about my dad is he was a friend. I have a lot of sentimental attachment to this area. He's a hard-working family man. Heaven knows I hate to think that generation might be ending But if he goes, he will go down in history As the last, the last of a dying breed Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio at WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Um, and just wanted to remind you that today our topic is food sovereignty, but we've also talked about food apartheid. Um, and we've, we interviewed um, Leah Penniman, who is the author of Farming While Black and the director of Soul Fire Farms in New York. And we spoke with Becca Polk, who is an educator um, in Springfield, Vermont, and she also um, has a uh, garden and um, helps her students think about really important issues about food and food sovereignty and relationships around food. Um, so now we are going to speak with Joe Frigo. Um, can you hear us, Joe? Hi, Nina. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thank Hi, you. Amar. Hey, Joe. So, Joe, um, just for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what work you do? Sure. Um, so I've been a seventh grade science teacher at the Stratton Mountain School, and i um, really excited next year I'll be joining Becca at the Riverside Middle School teaching seventh grade science. Um, and I have worked in fisheries conservation and other conservation projects um, prior to coming to teaching. And um, currently also teaching a natural history of Vermont class at QCD, where we've been looking at agriculture quite a bit. Mm, wonderful. Um, so let's dive right in. Um, tell us about industrial agriculture um, and how big that is in the U.S. economically as well. And how does it contribute to the degradation of our land, our environment, our climate, and our communities? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, industrial agriculture, even just looking at it from the lens of Vermont, um, kind of came about as a result of the Industrial Revolution and the mechanization um, that came with it. So as farmers um, began to have the, the machines to grow, um, to till more land, um, the the farms began to grow in a way that we hadn't seen them grow prior to the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, specifically in Vermont, um, you have now this 
this increasing competition amongst farmers for both over land and also over um, the goods that they're producing. So um, industrial agriculture now is an incredibly huge industry um, owned by essentially very few people and corporations um, throughout the U.S. Uh, and it contributes to the degradation of the land um, in a number of ways, uh, but a lot of most of those ways can be connected to um, that large-scale uh, scope of the agriculture that's happening rather than the smaller-scale agricultural um, farms that we saw in Vermont and elsewhere um, prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, so, you know, recently, uh, even like in the area around North Carolina, they had, you know, uh, historic flooding as a result of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of um, pork and pig farms down there, pig farmers. And, and you know, in comparison to a, a smaller scale agricultural farm where each farmer might have a few pigs that they would they would sell uh, or, you know, harvest and sell to the people. Um, now you have these huge mechanized um, farms where there's, you know, thousands and thousands of, of pigs and, um, you know, the waste that comes with them has to be put into these large slurry pools um, somewhere located on the farm because the, the amount of waste based on the scale that the industrial agriculture has to work under in order to make a profit in the system um, is so vast that they can't compost the waste in a way that a small farm could. Mm-hmm. So um, recently in North Carolina, there was historic flooding that would could easily is linked to climate change, and that flooding causes these slurry pools to actually overflow into the river systems, um, which has a, a dire effect on the, uh, the ecology of those river systems, increasing the level of nitrogen, and you have algae blooms and a lack of oxygen that comes with it. So um, that's just one way that they, um, that they impact the local lands. But, you know, there's so many different aspects, especially in regards to most farmers now, um, you know, are in the business of growing corn and soy. And, you know, what Becca and Leah kind of connected to is, you know, as far as like those those cleanly packaged items of food that actually really have no nutritional benefits um, are produced for those products. And even those products are not um, necessarily going to be able to, to be sustained in many ways and they have to be subsidized in order for the farmers to grow them right i mean as you're talking i have like all kinds of little things going on in my head of like you know when you said mechanization my first thought under a, a capitalist system it has to be a group of people who have the means to buy the the mechanisms right so eventually as you said like it gets fewer and fewer people own it because of the 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 logic of capitalism, which is about competition between capitalists. And so, um, so it definitely, and I think that's what we've seen here and, and everywhere around the world in terms of like fewer and fewer owners um, of land um, because sure. they're yeah, able Yeah, and to. I mean, I think the dairy industry in Vermont is a great representation of that, right? Like, so, you know, as the um, 
the dairy industry became more competitive and more mechanized, the farmers realized that they had to produce ever-increasing amounts of milk. And with that came, um, you know, these um, automated kind of uh, milking stations and the um, pesticides and the huge equipment that's required to grow the corn to feed the cattle. And now more... There's just a number of articles have been coming out, coming out about the plight of these sm- formerly small, small dairy farmers in Vermont who are on this, who have who are caught up in that that um, that track towards profit maximization, and many of them can't keep up. And then right. the ones who have, um, who maybe did go to the bank to get that huge loan to buy right. the, you know. Um, the often even close to a million dollars for these these um, fully automated barns where the cows can be milked now can't can't um, sell their milk for the money they need to pay back the bank. So right. um, there was an article recently where you know a farmer who is about to go under a dairy farmer in Vermont, um, you know, was saying that even though he's, he's going to go under, he's He's very happy that when that time came, he didn't uh, take out the loan from the bank because he would have been in an even worse situation than he already is now. Um, And, you know, we're seeing this all across the country, um, especially with what's happening between um, the globalized trade between us and China and others and these, these need for subsidies to keep the farms going. And at the same time, um, you know, despite the subsidies, the farmers can't sustain themselves under this system. Right. And, you know, and what I think of as you're talking is, you know, that that food, you know, like shelter is a basic necessity for a human to stay alive. And when it gets caught up into this profit system that of capitalism that um, people starve, even though there's a lot of food. Um, people can't afford food or afford uh, healthy food. So it's a real, uh, again, like, you know, we were saying, Becca and I were, when we were talking, like, in terms of, like, looking at a a larger system that facilitates this kind of um, undernourishment. Sure. And it's like, and it's also connected to the crops they're growing. You know, when we step back and look at these huge fields of corn that, um, you know, are are often people think of of the West, but um, they are here in Vermont too. That large scale um, Monsanto based heavy pesticide use agriculture that's required to grow this corn that's unedible to humans, mm-hmm. but is only used for the dairy for the dairy industry or mm-hmm. for this you know high fructose corn syrup products. And you know they. So we have to step back and say, for for what purpose uh, are we growing these these types of crops in comparison to um, you know growing food for the people? Mm-hmm. Right. And about about the the big industrial farms here in Vermont, I'm just curious about if you've got a sort of a picture of uh, of what kind of farms we do have in Vermont. Because as Becca was talking about moving up here from D.C., she had this picture of people in Vermont having local farms and eating healthy and having plenty of vegetables. And I do think that there's a, a very clear image of Vermont as a, a state run with 
full of small family farms and how our agriculture is based on that. And yet you're speaking about some of the, the huge agricultural, uh, industrial agricultural projects going on here. So I'm just curious if you have any comments about that disparity. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, I would say that, you know, I think that that image is beneficial to the state, um, you know, and that the actual reality on the ground is that we need, you know, a total um, revolution as far as um, farming and, and, and agriculture goes, Uh that is driven, like Leah said, um, from from the people, from those poor white, black, and indigenous farmers. Um, that is totally different from what we see now. I mean, it's it's easy to to be in certain places in Vermont and see these small farms, um, but in the end, it's not enough to actually feed the people. And so, as far as that needs to be taken to a, a far broader scale. But when you travel, you know, south of Lake Champlain, um, there's an around the area around Middlebury and north up to the lake. That, you know, is an incredibly fertile soil mm-hmm. there. And I think it's, but it's being treated like dirt in the yeah. sense that um, that fertile ground that could be being used to grow, to, um, to grow food for the people is under the, the land is under the control of a few uh, corporate-based farmers who use, um, you know, the Monsanto-style heavy pesticide agriculture in order to grow mm-hmm. corn and soy to feed um, that mechanized dairy industry um, that is also what I would say is the the largest agricultural industry in Vermont as far as um, the, like, total economic, um, the total players. Um, spent and um, exported as far as like those those milk and those corn products. So I think it's it's easy for us to see like Vermont in a certain way as far as being these small scale farms everywhere and like we don't have the agriculture of the West. But that both that mentality and the farms themselves are certainly here as well. Right, and to connect it to like the the you know, short-term housing. It's like creating that image to, to bring in, you know, people who stay here and for short-term and rent short-term housing. And so, so many connections. Um, but Joe, thank you so much. And congratulations um, on your new position in Springfield. We're very excited. Thank you. Um, great. Thank you. We'll, um, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Joe. Of course. Thanks for having me. Bye. All right. So, um, we just wanted to make a few announcements um, before our last song. So once again, this is Indigo Radio um, on the Brattleboro Community Radio Station 107.7 FM. Make sure you check out our Facebook page at Indigo Radio. Um, you can also listen to these shows on SoundCloud and iTunes um, podcasts. Um, and we also have photos and, and other resources available on um, on our Facebook page. And we're also on Instagram. Um, and I think we're all getting ready to move into summer break. But we will ha- we'll continue our shows over the summer. Most of us are educators. so But um, there are no announcements currently for events. Um, we are going to clock out with a song from... We're going to listen to a song by Bob Marley and the Whalers called Them Belly Full, But We Hungry, talking about uh, inequality in resources, 
particularly in Jamaica, and people rising up against that. Thank you very much. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic 